the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here. It's a thrill to have you along today, and I hope today's episode helps you thrive in life and leadership. Today, we've got one of my favorite humans alive. Tim Keller has helped me so much in my leadership, thinking about faith, thinking about life, and so much more. Tim Keller is back on the show, and today's episode is brought to you by Generis. Generis has over 33 years in the field. They'd love to help you get generosity fostered in your church, especially in this economically turbulent year. Visit generis.com slash carry to get a completely free pulse report and a 30-minute coaching call for your team today. And by Leader, check out leader.com, that's L-E-A-D-R.com, and use the promo code CARRY for 20% off your first year and start having productive one-on-one meetings with your team today. So we are talking to Tim Keller. It's a wide-ranging interview. So we talk about the decline of the mainline and evangelical church. He wrote a fascinating piece on that. We will link to it in the show notes. That's just kerrynewhoff.com slash episode 548. And we will link to the longer extended PDF version. It's like a mini book. It's so good. It's so good. I read it all. And how forgiveness and justice get mishandled during pastoral moral failures, the threat to liberal democracy, civil dialogue, and how nominal Christianity damaged things. So Tim Keller is the chairman of Redeemer City to City and pastor emeritus at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, which he and his wife Kathy started in 1989. For over a quarter century, Tim led a diverse congregation of young professionals that grew to a weekly worshiping community of over 6,000 people meeting in eight different locations in Manhattan. In May 2017, those congregations became independent churches. Tim transitioned to become uh, not a senior pastor, but to work more broadly in New York City and global cities through the work of City to City, which he helped start, which has helped start over 750 churches in some of the most influential cities of the world. So, Really thrilled to have Tim back on. By the way, if you haven't read his books, he's got a number of New York Times bestselling books, such as The Reason for God, Prodigal God, The Meaning of Marriage, and his latest one called Forgiveness. So Tim Keller is going to touch on some really important topics about the health of the church today and thriving in the future. But there's another really important health factor in your church, and that is the health of your church's generosity. And keeping track of generosity and giving is important all year, but in January, February, even more critical. You already know what your total giving was for last year, but do you have a good perspective on what happened in your giving database and among your donors? So what if there was a tool that could eliminate the guesswork and provide your team with significant insights into the state of generosity in your church? Thankfully, our friends at Generis have developed just that with their free Generosity Pulse Report. This tool assesses the current health of your church's giving and provides deeper clarity into your financial reality beyond just like the bottom line figure of how much people gave. You'll see the behavior of your givers, not just your financial numbers. But most importantly, it helps you understand what might be possible if you implemented a few key measures in your church. The best part, it's totally free. You don't ever have to pay. So if you want to not miss out on this timely opportunity to assess the state of generosity in your church, visit generis.com slash carry, that's G-E-N-E-R-I-S.com slash carry, to include a completely free pulse report and 30 minutes from a team member for your church today. 
Who else has leadership development intentionally high on your New Year's resolution list? A new year is a perfect time to kick in with some more intentional leadership habits. As I'm talking with leaders, I hear all the time that the one-on-one meeting is a felt need. People hate their meetings. They don't like them. The bosses don't like them. Employees don't like them. Why? People just are disengaged. And what happens is if, especially if you're a boss, your people don't feel cared for or developed, they're not engaged. Well, my friends at Leader are solving that problem. They're the first ever people development software focusing on helping you have better one-on-one meetings that are employee-focused, that drive engagement, and put an end to meeting dread. And as a one-stop shop software solution for all things people-focused, they also help you streamline other healthy leadership habits you're struggling with, such as effective feedback, clear goals, and better performance reviews. And it all starts with a one-on-one meeting. So, Join me on becoming a more intentional leader by checking out leader.com. That's L-E-A-D-R, no second E, L-E-A-D-R.com to figure out how you can better engage and grow your team today through one-on-one meetings. Use the promo code CARRY. You'll get 20% off your first year. That's leader.com. Use the promo code CARRY, 20% off your first year. And now my conversation with Tim Keller. Tim, it's a delight to have you back. I'm so glad to talk to you again. And I, I appreciate you, Carrie. And I know what you, the burden that you are having to spell your name to everybody every day. Say, no, that's not how you spell my last name. I just, I just appreciate the way in which you uh, carry that burden with grace. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, I think it was in kindergarten I realized, oh, this is not going to be easy. Like uh, other kids get like simple names and here I am with Newhoff. <laughs> but the good news is you get to own the internet, right? You can misspell it and they still find you. That's true. That is true. Mm-hmm. If they can, if they can spell it, though, you know. <laughs> yeah, you have to come within some closeness of spelling it. If you're going to look so. up what people are saying about you on the internet, you're probably going to have to put in five or six different spellings because they're probably under, especially on Twitter. There's probably there's probably Carrie, you know, C A R E C A R Y N E W H O F, and I bet there's all kinds of stuff that's been said about Carrie Newhoff there that you've never even seen. Well, like and that might be is. a good thing, isn't it? It, it, <laughs> that might, it might be a really be. good thing. It, it might be, I suppose. Yeah. Hey, I'd love to start with a little update on how you're doing. Uh, I've been praying for you. I know I've been joined by many, many people. How, how are you feeling? How is your health? Well, I'm, I'm very happy to talk about that, but very briefly. I, I've had, I have pancreatic cancer stage four. Uh, that was first spotted, actually, in February of 2020. And as most of your listeners probably know, uh, it's very deadly. And the fact that I'm about to celebrate my third Christmas with my children and grandchildren is a great gift of God. I've had good doctors and I've done chemo. And right now I'm in an immunotherapy trial, a drug trial. Um, But, uh, and I'm just, you know, I, you, you have cancer, you live from scan to scan, basically. The last scan was great, but then, you know, another scan is going to come up and it's going to come up in a few, um, you know, weeks or a month or two or something like that. So, but I, meanwhile, in spite of the fact that I can't do it nearly as much as I used to do, especially travel, um, I can stay productive. In other words, I can still do a lot of things and write a lot of things, talk to a lot of people. So I'm extremely grateful. That's the sum. Yeah. Wow. Well, we'll continue to pray for you. And thank you for continuing 
to write. We're going to talk about a couple of your most recent works, which I imagine were written in the last year or two, too, yeah. while you've uh, been going through this. Um, so let's start with the the article, the series of articles that you released on the rise and decline of the mainline and then the evangelical church and then the re- the potential renewal of the church, which, by the way, we'll link to in the show notes. And you can get the individual articles, but you also wrote a PDF, which is much more detailed and has an extensive bibliography. So um, what are the differences, maybe we'll start here, between the decline in the mainline church that we saw kind of a generation ago yeah. and the decline that we're seeing today in the evangelical church? Well, the similarities are um, that both the mainline church a generation ago, and now the evangelical church more recently, have essentially uh, hooked themselves up to a particular political program. Obviously, the mainline church just became essentially completely uh, hooked up to the Democrats and uh, to liberal progressive democratic uh, politics, and saying that this is the only really Christian way to be. and that decline happened quite a while ago. On the other hand, back by the 70s, for example. On the other hand, the evangelical church has more recently made the same move. It has, um, as at least in the public's mind, I'm not saying this is true of every single person in the mainline or of the you know, evangelical church, but largely, and in the public's mind, the evangelical church is seen as having hooked up to the Republican Party, especially to a very conservative wing of the Republican Party, and so in the same way, uh, we have also, the evangelical church has sort of said, this is the only Christian way to be politically. And so I think the population on the whole sort of sees both churches as basically a power block and not really speaking uh, to the transcendent issues that all human beings have. Um, the, I think what's interesting is uh, the difference, by the way, is that whereas the mainline church jettisoned orthodox doctrine, it jettisoned the idea of the authority of the scripture and the deity of Christ and the return of Christ and all that. And they thought they were getting with the times, but what's actually happened is they're cut off now from 80, 90% of the world church, which is, which is growing. Hmm. And it, it's very embarrassing that, uh, you know, there's 2 million Episcopalians in America, very liberal church, and yet, like, there's 11 million Anglicans in, you know, in uh, uh, Uganda alone, and there's twice that much in, in Nigeria, and they're all Orthodox. And the same thing has happened for the Methodists. In other words, the, right. the, the church here is Methodist, is sort of liberal, but worldwide Methodism is not. So they've actually cut themselves off from the growing edge of the church and the world church. Evangelicals have not, which I think means because we haven't cut ourselves off and because we haven't jettisoned orthodox doctrine, at least not yet, we haven't, it means in some ways there's something there to be revived. Hmm. And there's something there to be revived, especially if we, because I believe, of course, orthodox doctrine is true and biblical, but I also believe it keeps us in touch with the, with the uh, world church. And therefore, I have little or no real hope for any kind of renewal with the main line, but I have a lot more hope renewal with the evangelicals. When I say a lot more, I means that's a low bar compared to how I feel about the main line. 
evangelicals, I still don't, I'm still worried, very, very, very worried, but I do think there's something there. No, and it is, it is helpful. And yet you don't exactly whitewash the issues of the evangelical church. And in that paper, which again, we'll link to, you know, you do make a distinction between white evangelicalism and other forms of evangelicalism. And I'm not sure we'll have time to get into all seven traits that mark the social history of white U.S. evangelicalism. But could you give us a little overview of how white evangelicalism is, because it's in a free fall right now, some of those traits and how that has become counterproductive? Yeah, I can name them at least. And that way, sure, yeah. whether we can go yeah. into them or I can name them. And yep, um, well, one is there's a moralism. Uh, it's It tends to be moralistic, which means self-righteous. It's separatist which is, in, in general, uh, white evangelicalism, or you want, I, I, some people are going to say, this is just fundamentalism. Okay, well, that's, we can talk about that. But that, uh, fundamentalism and evangelicalism are, in some ways, just joined at the hip. Um, and it's always very hard to tell quite where the, where the divide is. But the point is, uh, conservative evangelicals are moralistic and self-righteous. They tend to be separatistic, they don't really like to engage. They feel like it's compromising. They they see good and evil in kind of Manichaean ways. You know, we just have to denounce and withdraw. Okay. Number three, they're they're very individualistic. It's all about just me and getting myself right and getting to heaven. Uh, four, uh, it's dualistic, which goes together with individualism. It's dualistic where it's, it basically tends to, you know, pit... Uh, Christianity against culture. Uh, we, we either withdraw from culture uh, or we fight it, but there's no idea of, uh, that there's, it, it goes along with uh, the separatism, but it's, it's there. It, in other words, the, the world is bad and everything in the church is good. Instead of seeing that the world has got common grace and the church has got, you know, uh, sin in it, but instead dualism, it's like it's all good or evil. Anti-intellectualism is a major um, trait of American evangelicalism. You don't see it in the British as much, for example. Hmm. You know, when you take it, you know, why is it that when I was first coming to be a Christian in 1970, in the 70s, why why is it that almost every, as a college-educated kid, everything I read, you know, whether it was C.S. Lewis or J.I. Packer or John Stott, they were all British. And it's because uh, in America, you just have an anti-intellectualism and you just really didn't have books written for college-educated people. Um, then there's an anti-institutionalism, uh, which means evangelicals just like to set up their own shop, their own organizations. Uh, they just don't like to become part of existing institutions and existing organizations. They, just, they like to do it themselves. Highly entrepreneurial, but also anti-institutional. So the stuff to kind of, they, they don't build things that last. Uh, and finally, enculturation. That is to say, there's a tendency to wed uh, Christianity to American culture. So it's the reason why, yeah, there's a, I would say there certainly is grounds for uh, the gender roles. I think the Bible does talk about there's differences between male and female, but there's a tendency amongst evangelicals and fundamentalists in America to exaggerate those and and basically read anything traditional American gender roles back into the Bible. 
Uh, also, there's nationalism, which is the idea that we're the greatest country in the world. You kind of read your Americanism back into the Bible. Um, and so uh, there we are, moralism, separatism, individualism, dualism, anti-intellectualism, anti-institutionalism, enculturation. And if you want to find out where they came from, you got to kind of read um, both Nate Hatch, his book, Dem uh, The Democratization of American Christianity, and Mark Knoll, Mark Knoll's stuff. And basically, they, they essentially say that kind of what happened back in the 1820s and 1830s, American evangelicalism, in order to really grow on the frontier, had to go to a less educated ministry. Uh, it, it just went anti, how do you say, it went populist in the 1830s. It's a long story. And you know what, mm. I've, I've already taken too long on this question. This podcast is not lasting three hours, so I should uh, make my questions uh, a little shorter. But they, they explain why American evangelicalism has been so anti-intellectual, populist, you know, of the people, but then really not trusting the academy, the university, not trusting science, just not trusting, you know, people with degrees, just not, just not trusting them. So... Yeah. And which of those, like, if you had to pick a couple and maybe it's a false question and if so, we can move on, but which of those do you think in this moment has become the most damaging? Because I was just looking over the Barna data this morning, uh, doing some writing. And I mean, we are in a bit of a free fall. There's a yeah. little uptick after, uh, but when you look at Gen Z, I mean, mm -hmm. they're spiritually open, but Christianity is just not very interesting to younger adults. Well, if you, read if you read those seven i don't think i'm going to pick one out they, they really are involved with each other the, the seven when i was working on it i could have made it three i could have made it five because they kind of overlap um but i i, I broke them out because i i think it's a um uh if i'm trying to think here is there a way for me to summarize it it's a uh I, I, did, I think the two things would be the moralism and the um, the fear of um, uh, in a kind of I don't want to be mean here a kind of fear of ceremonial impurity. Uh, like I'm going to get in, I'm just going to be harmed if I read this book or if I if I associate with these people. And see that is moralism ultimately. It's not it's not the confidence. You know Jesus was eating with 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 you know, prostitutes and sinners and people like that. And the religious leaders of the day were saying, how could he, you know, if you're a real man of God, why would you have anything to do with him? And because Jesus understood who he was and he understood the gospel of grace, he was just not afraid of being uh, made impure. And I do think that, that, that I don't, I really do think a lot of evangelicals and they, they can articulate the gospel. I'm saved by grace, not by works. But deep in its heart, it's pretty moralistic. And the way you do that is you stay pure and you keep your doctrine right and you live in all these ways. And then you start looking down on people and you separate from people. So I, get, I think it's the moralism, the lack of grasp of the gospel and the particular way that that has played out in American history. Found it also really helpful in the paper. Uh, do you call it a paper? It feels like a mini book. It feels like there's a book there, Tim. Um, and uh, I hope one day there will be. Yeah, I think it's about uh, a half a book. Yeah, um, yeah, it's 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 the um, yeah, it's the it's like it's the spine of a book. So, yes, thank you. But anyway, what, 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 <laughs> well, did, you, what did you say? It's robust. Okay. No, but you also trace out racial history and yeah, evangelicalism. Yeah. 
and make a distinction between white evangelicalism and other forms of evangelicalism, yeah. which arguably aren't in the kind of free fall that white evangelicalism is. Uh, what What is helpful for us to focus on when it comes to race and the evangelical church? Well, we do have... To, I, the history is pretty sad. Actually, uh, Mark Knoll has two books on that. He does have a book. Oh, I forget the name of it. It's behind me. I think it's the... Oh, dear. He's got a book on race and the church, but I just okay. forget the name. But he's also we'll got... Google it and link to yeah, it. Yeah, he's also... If you put in Mark, uh, Mark Knoll, N-O-L-L, and race, it, there's a book that actually has the word race in the title. So it's kind of a history of of the church and race in our culture. God and America. race in American politics? That's it. That's one. Is that it? But, okay. but there's, there's another one that I think in some ways gets to the question of where did this... Why is it that white evangelicals are so ambivalent about race? Why, why, why do they seem to really wink at white supremacy? I mean, they they don't they don't articulate it, but when they hear it, they you know they're they're not put off by it. Uh, and I think that you have to read Mark Knoll's book, uh, "The Civil War as a Theological Crisis." I think that's a fascinating book. In fact, the title is a fascinating thing. Yeah. And he, he points out that the rest of the world um, already had moved on. I mean, for example, uh, James Thornwell and Robert Dabney, who were two Southern Presbyterians. So I'm going to take, Carrie, I'm going to take responsibility here. Yeah. yeah, conservative Presbyterian theologians, Calvinist, you know, very Orthodox, and... Um, they were absolutely uh, in uh, lockstep theologically with the with conservative uh, Presbyterians in Scotland. Uh, the great leader was Thomas Chalmers, and uh, you know the Free Church of Scotland, which which was a really really strong uh, church. And theologically, they were exactly the same. But Thornwell and Dabney were making all these arguments about. Well, the Bible justifies race uh, 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 slavery. Slavery's fine. Look, it says, slaves obey your masters. And the free church people over in Scotland are saying, you're, you're kidding, right? You know, I said, uh, you know, the Bible, look, yeah, look, it says, uh, you know, slavery is something that God in the Mosaic legislation is there. And they look and say, you know, it does say in Deuteronomy that if a slave escapes, you don't return him because it shows they were abused. It says in Exodus that if you hit a slave to punish him and you knock his tooth out, he goes free. It says there that nobody should be a slave more than six years. It says there that slavery is never based on, you know, race. And they say, you're kidding, right? And, and yet what had happened was because the economy of the South, certainly the uh, prosperous South, you know, the people who had the money, was based on slavery. And there was this enormous pressure uh, on the Christians to justify it and not to undermine it. And you look at somebody like Thornwell and Dabney, because I have read their stuff, and at one level, they seem to be extremely sincere and very, very smart. But it's so fascinating that the, the cultural times shaped the way in which they read the Bible. And people who were not in that spot, they could see that they were being distorted. I mean, people from Scotland elsewhere, they could see it. And um, but what happened was they justified it, and then of course they had the civil war, and then they lost. And afterwards, there was a lot of 
white Southern evangelicals that, that held on to this self-justifying approach saying, well, black people, they should be slaves because, you know, look, they're, they're inferior. Look at, look at their poverty. Look at, look at the crime. And that just, that was a very, very powerful moment in American history where, um, the church, the Southern church should have turned to the Bible and read it. I think in context with, I mean, read it in connection with other people from other cultures. See, it wasn't that easy to do back then. And said, are we reading this right? Or are we just reading our own needs into it? Are we really listening to God's word? Or are we kind of eisegeting, you know, reading into it what we want to see? Um, but they failed. They did read it in. And that just, that that has infected. I mean, the, the white evangelicals have always had a strong strain of distrust of other races. And I think I think it comes down from that. And those those two books by Noel do help us see how that happened. And it's, um, it, it, you know, I mean, is that our original sin? I don't know. Is that American evangelicals original sin? I don't know if I go that far. I think we have our own original sin. <laughs> it's, it's not slavery. It's turning from God. And we, we all have remaining sin in us. But it's it's been tremendously tragic. And we're still experiencing it now. Yeah. Well, another thing we're really experiencing, too, is politics. Yeah. And I forget whether it was the New York Times or uh, Atlantic that you wrote for, but you've had a couple of pieces over the last few years on the uh, close coupling yeah. of conservative evangelicals and the politicization, really, of church. Um, your thoughts on that and where that becomes problematic and perhaps contributing to the decline of American evangelicalism? Well, now that's the, if you ask why this, why did this politicization happen? Yeah. You know, and what, what, why is it happening? Um, that's the hardest question you've asked me so far. I, I think, in fact, I bet it's the hardest question you're going to ask me. So you might want to give yourself a cigar right now. Well, thank this you. Is, yeah, you're welcome. This, this, this is, this is hard. So let me give you the best answer I can. Uh, Liberal democracy, which is how our, I'm using the word liberal very broadly, liberal democracy, which is how our constitution was written, how our, you know, how our country was founded, was the idea that the government is neutral when it comes to religion and religious beliefs. It does not impose religion and religious beliefs on people. It doesn't impose a worldview on people. It doesn't say uh, it, it doesn't hook up to Catholicism or Chris or Christ, you know, Lutheranism or whatever. And therefore, it's big on freedom of association, freedom of speech. It's a pluralistic society, so you have Jews and Catholics and various kinds of Protestants and atheists, and 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 it doesn't impose a worldview or religious views on people, and uh, or moral values on people. And it came out of the Enlightenment because the Enlightenment was born a couple hundred years before uh, America in the wars of religion. When everybody was fighting, basically people were dying as to which religion my, my country is going to be. And the, a lot of the thinkers of Europe came up and said, hey, you know what? Let's, let's create a society in which there's no one religion that is the official religion. And we are coming together just as reasonable people. And we decide how we want to live together. And uh, 
we, 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 we park our religion at the door when we come into the public realm and we, we make laws based on, you know, common, common good and that kind of thing. And for a very long time, that worked in America. And I just want you to know that that's the problem. The big problem is that liberal democracy is in crisis. And the reason it's in crisis is because, and here's the irony, and I, I don't think I, I, I think I could trace this out if I was writing something down. I think it'd be a little hard early right now to do it. But weirdly enough, liberal democracy kind of led to the decline of religion, probably. Because it, it really said, you know, religion is okay for your private life, but when it comes to the public life, we really don't need it. You know, it's really not important. We just use science and reason to figure out how we're going to live. And you you park your religion at the door when we come out here and talk together. You know, whether you're a Jew or a Catholic or a Muslim or a Christian or an atheist, you you, you know, you, you come together and we just, we just, on you know, we just decide this. And it was, it was part of, uh, I think, what weakened faith, because it was really saying faith is a private thing. It just makes you happy but it really isn't all that necessary for how you live your whole life. Whatever. But the fact is that when religion started to decline, the thing that now, I, I have some atheist friends who admit this, say the thing that actually held us together was not freedom of speech, freedom of association, you know, using our reason. What held us together was like 80% of the population went to either a Catholic or a, or a Protestant church. They actually went. And that even though, like, you know, the liberals and conservatives in Congress would were uh, arguing over taxes or unions, but they would never argue over same-sex marriage. They all thought it would be a horrible thing. In other words, everybody was a nominal, 80, 90 percent of people were nominal Christians. And because they were nominal Christians, they had, they had a moral base and they lived with the illusion that we're really not a Christian country, we're a secular country. But the fact is they'd never really had to deal with pluralism using liberal democratic uh, you know, structure. And when real pluralism came along, when real pluralism came along, we found out we, we couldn't abide it. And so now here's the first thing that happened. The first, the first group of people that actually moved away from liberal democracy into we're going to impose our worldview on you were the progressives. They were the first people to start doing it. Um, what uh, Rowan Williams, Archbishop of Canterbury, former, talks about, he calls it programmatic secularism rather than procedural secularism. In other words, it used to be the government was secular in the sense of being a neutral umpire and said, okay, you know, we, we want to make sure everybody has a, a you know, level playing field to make your case and, and live your lives. But, but programmatic secularism goes like this. Um, uh, if you expect well, put it this way, in the 60s and 70s, even the 50s, if somebody wrote a book saying it's okay to be gay, that would probably be not publishable because it would be banned as obscene speech, right? Today, if you say, if you try to write a book or say it's not okay to be gay, now it's also condemned as obscene speech, except it's called hate speech. And what's happened is there was a kind of hegemony, it wasn't pluralistic, there was a kind of nominal Christian hegemony that really did run things. And when, when that fell apart, now we realize, well, who's going to get in charge of defining hate speech and obscene speech? And progressives said, we're going to do it. 
And so what they actually have done is they are imposing a kind of programmatic, uh, hard secularism. And conservatives and Christians have seen that. They say, you know what, you're not being neutral anymore. You're really actually pushing. You're really, you're actually saying, you're actually saying you have to keep your religion totally, totally private when our religion doesn't allow that. Now, by the way, it's the same problem with Islam. So they're going to have the more Muslims that are here, the more problems they're going to have there too. But the issue is that conservatives are pushing back wrongly, I think, and are saying, yeah, liberal democracy doesn't work. We need, there's a lot of conservatives saying we need Christian nationalism. We actually need to get, the, the state needs to be overtly Christian, overtly Protestant, or there needs to be, you know, the Catholic integralists say that the Catholic church should be the state church. And what they're saying is there's absolutely no way to get that moral consensus. We're always going to be fragmented. Liberal democracy doesn't work. And it is a crisis because the fact is, as long as everybody was a nominal Christian, liberal democracy works and it doesn't, we're not that anymore. Liberal democracy undermined Christianity and religion in general and created the situation where we truly are divided. And now the old liberal democracy, democratic, uh, uh, you know, proceduralism doesn't bring us together. We're just at each other's throats. We have alternate views of reality, totally different views of reality. And I don't have a good way forward. I mean, if you were asking me that question, I'm not going to answer it because I'm actually thinking it out. I still think liberal democracy is way better than Catholic integralism or Protestant Christian nationalism. But I also feel like you've got to call out the progressives, you know, to say this, what youth consider democracy actually isn't. It is actually an imposition of your worldview on us. So I, I feel like we have to call both sides out. But when I do that, I am, maybe Carrie, you know, I am called both sidism, um, you know, playing, you know, or, or, or being trying to be apolitical when you can't be. I, I don't think that's possible. But I do think it's fair to say, sorry, right and left, you're, I don't know what the alternative is, but you, what you are proposing is absolutely wrong, will never really work. So I told you this was the hardest question, and I don't know what you're going to do with it. So Tim, that is fascinating. And I guess you could say that for the first time, we really do have a plurality of opinions, right? Like that's what pluralism is. We have divergent opinions. I also know that, you know, you spent a lot of time in your active ministry navigating LGBTQ issues and the sexuality of the scripture versus our culture's view. Um, just to draw that out a little bit more, I know we've talked about identity and how that's become a defining characteristic of this generation. But how do you suggest, because obviously there are people who are affirming who listen to this podcast, there are people who are not. But how do you suggest when you have a different viewpoint than perhaps the culture does, how do you express that in a way that isn't reactionary or angry or inflammatory or completely alienating from the gospel? Well, you've half answered. I love questions where you, the question actually gives half the answer. It was a softball, was it? <laughs> it was. I mean, I, a lot of it has to do with tone. A lot of it has to do with also... Uh, Another thing, a lot of it has to do with um, the theater that you're in when you're talking. In other words, are you are you just spouting the world, or are you actually talking to somebody face to face? Are you talking to neighbors? Um, are you? Uh, I think what you have to do is you have to say, "Here's how I see it." Um, 
But then the, the best way to do this is to say, my understanding of your point of view is this. And then when you are done, if the other person says that you said that perfectly well, I couldn't have said it better myself. Then you can say, well, here's why I don't agree with it. And here's, here's my point of view. I think that in that way, you, you actually have, um, it's face-to-face. -face. You know, you have people who are talking to each other. I actually, by the way, believe that that cadre of people, they do have to spend time together before they would make those videos. They actually have to have these, a lot of these conversations before they make the videos. But I do think you might be able to do something like that, where, where you were giving people um, examples of how we ought to be talking to each other and, and how we can still live together. So that's the reason why I still believe that liberal democracy, uh, a, a, plur a truly pluralistic society in which the progressives are not actually shutting out uh, religious people, you know, Orthodox Muslims and, and Christians and uh, Jews who have particular views. But at the same time, there's not some Christian hegemony, some Christian nationalism that's shutting out secular voices or gay voices or anything like that. I don't know how we're not going to have. Um, uh, pluralistic society, how we're going to get a pluralistic society unless we change public opinion, which right now is actually trending on both sides away from freedom of speech. It's trending away from these, this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And that is, especially under younger people, you know, uh, you, you, both, both left and right, younger people are not in favor of what, what us older people would have considered free speech. They are, they are definitely mm -hmm. in, in, they, they like speech codes. They like just telling people you can't say those things on both sides. And so what you'd have to do is give people examples. And I think that could be done. I think, on the other hand, I don't know, Carrie, why don't you come up with your uh, list of 10? I actually do know a few, frankly. Uh, I'm on a Zoom call fairly often with um, people on both sides, you know, both religious believers and non-religious people and liberals and more conservative people and all that that actually get together in order to have conversations like this. Um, but it's very, very private and, and very, very informal. But if you were going to do something like this, it's probably, it might be possible. It'd be very interesting. Well, it would be, but it requires maturity and relationship. And I think that is what is lacking in so much of the debate. Well, it's a very nice segue into your new book. It's called Forgive. It's an excellent book. And one of the most intriguing things, it's obviously what the Bible has to say, what Jesus taught about forgiveness etc. But I loved, and you, you spent quite a bit of time on this, you talked about what happens when there isn't forgiveness. And I think we're in a moment right now in our culture where forgiveness is very much a rare commodity. I mean, we're in cancel culture. Uh, what, what does culture look like without the Christian imperative to forgive? Uh, well, the old shame and honor cultures that didn't uh, actually, the Greeks and the Romans were shame and honor cultures. Now, some were more than others. The Athenians were a little more big on pluralism to some degree in their own way um, than the Spartans, you know. But uh, Aristotle, who said that uh, some people deserve to be slaves. And um, it's the ancient cultures were shame and honor cultures, which meant you had people with more honor and people with less honor. And uh, the people with less honor just weren't treated as equals at all. And, and they also felt 
basically, you know, I remember reading, where was it I read this? Anyway, I, I read a uh, historian of early Europe, which was, of course, as you know, um, pagan. I mean, it was, uh, it was uh, you know, the, the Norse gods and the German gods, you know, Odin and Thor <laughs> and all that sort of thing. Okay. Um, and when the Christians showed up, which were the monks, it was, it was monks. They were building monasteries. And when the Christians were there, they, uh, they were talking about forgiveness. And most of the, the pagans said, this is crazy. You're never going to have a, uh, an actual coherent society if people aren't afraid, people in charge. They have to be afraid. And if you cross them, they, you're going to get vengeance. And um, it was a it was a retaliation. It was a it was a uh, essentially a culture based on fear, society based on fear. The strong eating the weak. And I mean, all I, all I can say is that um, the the Christian culture actually did cohere, um, but it was a less violent culture. There was uh, it, it it didn't get rid of it. Because Christian culture never became thoroughly Christian, right? Everybody knows that Christendom, it, it didn't mean that 90% of the people were devout Christians. But it definitely, I mean, you, you couldn't have gladiator games, for example, in a, in, a, in a Christendom society. But you could have it in a shame and honor culture. And so I, I don't want to go back to that. I don't want to go back to more tribalism, more violence. But there is a worry on my part that we might be going back to that. Well, it feels that way. I mean, with cancel culture, and I mean, you engage uh, the Me Too movement, the Church Too movement, and there are just horrendous stories of abuse, et cetera, et cetera. And yet it raises the question, um, well, talk about that a little bit, because I don't I don't want to put words in your mouth. You, you make the point that sometimes the call can be, well, we need to forgive, unconditionally, we'll just restore that person immediately, which is probably not wise. Or the other extreme is, well, there's no forgiveness. You're banished to the desert until death and never reintegrated with culture. So when you think about the cancel culture we're in right now, often, you know, people have done horrible things. They need to be held to justice. Where does forgiveness legitimately play in or how does it play in in those situations? The key, I think, is a point, a, a case I make in the book that forgiveness is not the opposite or the, a contradiction to seeking justice. In fact, forgiveness is a precondition for seeking justice. That's the key because uh, most people pit the two against each other. That's the reason why, uh, and by the way, both sides, both victims and perpetrators, like to think of Christian, they think of forgiveness as being opposed to each other, and that's the reason why uh, the perpetrators have come to women in churches who have um, uh, been abused, and then the perpetrators and the church officers, let's say, come and say, "Well, he he repented. You have to forgive him, and so don't go to the police. Don't talk about this. You have to forgive him." And so th- they're saying. There's no, you know, it's uh, you forgive, you don't do justice. And of course, the victims themselves then say, I don't have to forgive. I'm not going to forgive because uh, forgiveness leads to injustice. 
But I try to make the case in the book that if you don't forgive before you seek justice, you won't really be seeking justice. You'll be seeking vengeance. And vengeance is a motivation that leads to excess and eats you alive while you're going after it. And so what you'll tell yourself is you're going after justice. But actually, you're probably going to want more than just what is fair. You're probably going to want the person just suffer and be angry and upset just like you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, will, you and also you probably won't be very convincing because it'll be very obviously that you're eaten up with a, just a desire for payback. Uh, it's not good for you. It's not good for the process. Uh, justice is something you do for the for other victims' sake, um, for God's sake, for the human community's sake, for justice's sake, even for the perpetrator's sake. Mm-hmm. Not just for your sake. Whereas vengeance is all about you, and so. I acknowledge in the book that that the idea of a a justiceless am I saying that right justiceless <laughs> forgiveness forgiveness that gets rid of the of pursuing justice that's just not biblical it's just not right it's just not true um, you know by the way let me give you a weird example you might say uh, when Moses sinned against God remember he struck the rock and God told him not to strike mm-hmm. the rock um, God didn't destroy him. God forgave him. But he says, you know what? There's consequences. You, you, you're not the guy to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. Somebody else is going to do it. Very interesting. It's mm-hmm. like God was saying, on the one hand, I do forgive you. On the other hand, um, I, you, you shouldn't be the guy who does that anymore. If there's still consequences. consequences. Yeah. And, and so, for quite example, for a woman who was hit by her husband to say, I forgive you. I'm calling the police. I think you can do that. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think you must do that because you should not. It's not good for anybody to let them sin against you. It's not good for anybody to let them sin against you. It's not good for their soul. And therefore, if your husband breaks the law like that and beats you, then you should call the police. But again, unless you forgive, it's really going to harm the whole process. You, if there's any chance of a healing the marriage you know, uh, you got to do the forgiveness. Uh, later on, you might wish I had forgiven him because I really wish I had brought the marriage. Anyway, so the point is, you have to do both. I think biblically, you have to do both. You have to honor the civil magistrate. He broke the law. At the same time, you have to forgive. As Jesus says in Mark eleven twenty five, if you stand, you're praying, and you have anything against anybody, forgive them. Hmm. So I know we're uh, coming up to the end of the podcast, but, you know, we've seen so many pastors fall. And I think you're right. You accurately diagnose it as almost instantaneous you know, reappointment. In other words, there were no issues. Everybody said, we're sorry, sweep justice under the rug and on with it. Or, you know, you're banished into the wilderness until you die. And you're suggesting a different path, correct? I believe the scripture does show something like with Moses. In fact, I've talked about this before when people have said, what does it mean if this man committed adultery with a member of his, of his, uh, here's a pastor, committed adultery with a member of his congregation, which is both an abuse of power and sexual immorality. Uh, in somebody who's supposed to be, uh, you know, obviously we're all sinners. Yes, of course, God forgives me anyway. But, uh, you know, the, when, when the Bible talks about the fact that elders are supposed to be given for given to hospitality, you say, well, isn't that true of all? 
Christians? Doesn't the Bible say all Christians will be given hospitality? The answer is yeah, but if you're going to be an officer, you have to be particularly given hospitality. And so the point is, you do. You, there's nothing wrong with holding Christian leaders to a higher standard, even if it's something that you're holding. Even if it's everybody's supposed to be doing the same thing. And so I would say, frankly, if somebody does that, let's say it's a senior pastor, uh, both for justice's sake and even for, I think, the sake of just about everybody, including the man. Uh, so I'm, I'm doing a male pastor here right now. I think either that person should leave the ministry or not ever be a senior pastor again. You know, there, there's chaplaincies. There's all sorts of ways of saying, well, I still got, you know, there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of ways that you might be able to stay, but not, I, to me, the thing is mainly uh, the leadership thing. You have, you, you've broken trust. And I don't think you should say, well, you know, to restore me means I want everybody to trust me just like they were before. And the answer is, I don't think they will. I don't think they can. I don't think they should, because trust takes time to rebuild. And I think it would be a long time before people were really trusting. And I don't think you should you should put a church through that. And so I would say, yeah, forgive the man and and even make it pot. He might want to be restored to some kind of ministry, but not the same kind of ministry. And I think Moses is a perfect example of that. A perfect example of that. God didn't actually take Moses out right away. He just basically said, you you can take him up to the promised land, but. You, you're not going to you're not going to be the guy to take him in. And I don't know why God did it that way. And, you know, he doesn't explain. And I don't think we have to try to uh, divine that. But so, yeah, I do think that that's a uh, they're, 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 in, to me, that's both reconciliation, restoration, compassion and forgiveness. Not like you're banished forever. I never want to hear from you again. But at the same time, it's really not just go back, start another church down the road. I, mm-hmm. It just doesn't make sense at all to do that. I don't think that's right. Well, there's so much more than what we were able to get into today, Tim, but I want to thank you for your time. And we made it through a couple of internet glitches and uh, survived, so that's good. Um, If people want to follow your work these days, where are you most active? And obviously the book Forgive is available anywhere books are sold, but where can they track with you these days online, Tim? Find Gospel Life which I think at this point is probably going to be, um, at least after January 1, it'll be at this Redeemer City to City website. But it won't be that hard to find. But if you put in Gospel and Life, Keller, there it is. Uh, and that's the, best, that's the best place to figure out what's, what's going on. Well, on behalf of so many people, thank you so much, Tim. I really appreciate you, really appreciate the time you've taken today. Thank you. Well, I am so grateful for Tim and so grateful that uh, he is doing well in his medical prognosis and with his health. And uh, I wish him many, many more years. And I am selfishly hoping he continues to write and podcast and give interviews and think about the problems we're facing today because he is a huge gift to this generation. I always say to people, you know, who's going to be read 100 years from now? People who are alive today. I'd put Tim Keller at the top of that list. The rest of us, probably not. But Tim, mm, yeah, definitely. Anyway, want to thank our episode partners today. If you haven't checked out Generis, man, they have a free pulse report that will show you what your 
donors are doing, way more than just the bottom line. And you'll get a 30-minute coaching call from a team member for your church today. Go to generis.com slash carry. That's G-E-N-E-R-I-S.com slash carry. And check out leader.com. That's L-E-A-D-R.com. No second E. Use the promo code carry. You'll get 20% off your first year and start having way better one-on-one meetings with your team today. So you can get show notes for today's episode, and you'll probably want that because we link to the, uh, well, now it's a PDF, the article he wrote on the decline and renewal of the American Evangelical Church and Mainline Church. You can get that at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 548. And um, next episode, we've got Bill McKendry. So we have been talking about the Super Bowl ads and the He Gets Us campaign. They're a partner with us. And I was at a conference recently, and Bill McKendry is the guy behind that. And I talked to him. Here's an excerpt. You know, one thing that drives me crazy about churches is they seem to kind of like borrow from secular, the secular world themes. Like, you know, the whole I saw for years, you know, got Jesus, you know, and uh, instead yeah, of got, yeah, milk, got right? Coke. you know, and, and number one is, you know, that's illegal. You're stealing somebody's intellectual mm-hmm. property, you know, but number two, it's very unoriginal. And, yeah. and people then start to look at the church as unoriginal people and people that need to borrow from the business world because they don't have credibility themselves. And so, you know, that unoriginality and that inability to really kind of say, hey, our business is about, you know, capturing people's souls, about bringing people to Jesus and saving them, right? Why would we not take this any, any, any more seriously than just borrowing somebody else's tagline? I thought it was a fascinating story. I really wanted to bring it to you. Also coming up, Andy and Sandra Stanley, Craig Grishel, John Mark Comer, John Lee Dumas. We're doing all the Johns with middle names. Uh, Gretchen Rubin, Erwin McManus, Annie, Andy Wood, Nathan Finocchio, and a lot more. And hey, when it comes to pastoral succession at your church, we know that a bad transition ruins a great legacy and can make the incoming pastor a sacrificial lamb. Well, that doesn't have to be your story. The Pastoral Succession Toolkit is available for free, and it's your guide to discern your call to be a lead pastor, understand your alignment with the church you'll be leading. It will show you how to negotiate your salary and time each of those steps carefully. You can get it for free, courtesy of my team over at SuccessionToolkit.com. That's SuccessionToolkit.com. Hey, I am so grateful you listened. I know that this is free, but you pay for it with your time and it continues to grow every month, every year. I want to thank you for that. Thank you for sharing it with friends. Thank you for leaving ratings and reviews. And I really hope our time together today has helped you identify and break a growth barrier you're facing.